The following podcast may be explicit. Shedcast presents Adventures from the Shed, a tabletop RPG podcast. You can find us online at adventuresfromtheshed.com. In this sidebar episode, we sit down to share advice and ideas for those who may be wanting to try their hand at being the game master of a tabletop role-playing game. Join Mickey, JJ, Kurt, Mike, and Joe at our table and enjoy the podcast. Hi and welcome to The Shed for Adventures from The Shed. We have a special sidebar podcast today where we're going to talk about what we uh, what we have for advice for a new dungeon master or game master, as well as what that person can expect when they're getting the game started off. We're going to go around the table and say hi, and Kurt has told me to go counterclockwise, which will mess with my brain, but in this case, we're going to start with Mike. Hey, this is Mike. Um, I have... I'm a very much a beginner DM, so I can give that input, hopefully, and help Kurt out. But here's Kurt. Hey, this is Kurt Schumacher. Um, I'll kick this off in a minute, but uh, I wanted to do this sidebar podcast because I am interested in maybe starting a new game, and I thought I could get some great advice from Joe and the other folks around the table. JJ here. I um, I have DM'd and played probably about equally. Um, so I hope to uh, be able to give some answers and feedback if necessary. And this is Mickey, and I've never GM'd, DM'd, or anything. I've always just played, sort of, kind of, maybe. Sort of, kind of, maybe. Sort of, kind of, maybe. All right, and yes, I am Joe, and we don't have a DM or GM for this as a sidebar podcast. And uh, I'm going to kick it back to Kurt, who's going to describe to us why we're doing this. Go ahead, Kurt. Right. So I have fairly limited experience playing, but I've been playing here at the Shed for quite a while and am definitely interested in starting a home game. Um, I have not done any game mastering other than a little bit, you know, when I was real young, um, but have always been interested in it um, at a couple of levels. One, interested in world building just as kind of a fantasy endeavor, but also two, uh, I'm really interested in getting some friends involved who have never played before. And for those of you at home don't know, I'm 40. I'm a professional. I have friends who run restaurants and so who are young. bankers and <laughs> and have really never played Dungeons & Dragons. But they have gotten jazzed about it from talking to me about this podcast, uh, from watching Lord of the Rings over the last decade and, and things like that. There are people who have a fantasy interest but have never had a gateway into gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, I, I have a little group that would be a great opportunity to at least try a starter set um, or you know a couple of one-shots to see if they might like it enough to become a regular home game. And if they don't, I have a couple of other friends who have played in the past and therefore have some experience with 3.5 or 4 um, and have kind of fallen out of gaming because they had kids or their jobs got too busy. And I think they, it would be easy to get them back for, you know, at least one night a month to play a fun, casual game at home. And let me point out, too, that I, I may have mentioned this in a previous podcast, but we actually have a diverse group that Kurt mentioned as a professional. Um, I won't call anyone out, but specifically we've kind of got Around the table here, we've got a banker, a college student, a lawyer, a graphic artist, and an IT professional. We've got a range of people within this. So as we're giving advice, um, just keep in mind that we are from a a range, of a nice pool of talent as well here. Right. And the reason I mentioned my age and profession is is, – 
you know, I don't have 20 hours a week to sit around necessarily creating a world and mapping out every inch of a dungeon on graph paper like I might have when I was eight years old, um, as much as I would like to. So, you know, I, this is intended to be a very practical sidebar where we talk about some specific questions that I had that I've already raised to the group. It's not meant to be the general hey, what do you want from a great DM? We already did that in one of our very first side uh, sidebars. And I actually thought that was a great podcast. If you haven't listened to it, you might want to go back and check it out. This is some more particular questions that I had. And uh, to be on, uh, I'd also just mention I'm uh, very pleased and honored that, uh, that the other crew members stayed around because it is fairly late here. And I thought this might just be Joe and I chatting. And to have the full table is going to be very helpful. Outstanding. So what we want to do, we have some very pointed questions that we want to address, topics that we want to address here. Um, Kurt, is there anyone that you wanted to talk about first out of our list? Some are very general and some are very specific. I, I think uh, let's talk mostly as if we're talking about a new game with relatively new players. Um, so you want to talk about it's a new GM who may have played the game before, using you as an example, right. Kurt. Uh, you've played the game before, but you haven't run a game yet. Exactly. And you have new players who have not played yet. Exactly. So and, using that example. And this could also be applicable to someone who either has never GM'd or maybe has GM'd a home game but might want to step it up and now go and try to run D&D &D encounters at their local game store, which sounds like a huge step, but that's actually something that uh, the game community really needs. They always have a hard time getting game masters or dungeon masters for the organized play, and particularly with D&D 5th edition coming up, um, they're really making a push with encounters to get people playing at the game stores. So if you have done a home game or are interested in this, I haven't done encounters. I can't speak to it directly, but it might, you know, this might be helpful for you as well. So um, I think you know, there, the two, two questions that are kind of good high-level questions and then can get a little more specific would be, you know, one, for that first session, um, do you want to have players creating a character as part of the experience, or do you as the game master want to have pre-generated characters ready for them? And then a related question is, do you want to have a published adventure maybe a starter set, or do you want to have a created world? And I know people will have different answers, particularly to that second question, but as a, you know, in our context, I'd like to hear your opinions on so this. So to me, that kind of boils down to how much do you want on paper before you start? The world, the characters, how much is prepared before you get started? Right. Uh, JJ, based on what you've run so far and the different players you've had, what would your answers to that be? All right, so um, I'm actually building one right now, and uh, the answer I'm going to give you is both. Um, you let the, the players who want to take the initiative, who have the desire to take the initiative, to create their own character. That way they can have a vested interest in that character. Um, but for those people who just don't have the time, don't have the, the wherewithal to actually sit down and create their own character... You know, you can give them a helping hand by creating, giving them a pre-gen. Right. Now, one thing I would ask as part of that, Kurt, is how much time, when you're first putting the game together, the first session you have, um, and this kind of goes to encounters. One of the D&D &D encounters things is they usually have a, a Saturday ahead of time. I think it's a Saturday where they do character creation, right? So how much time in that first session, and you don't have to answer this, it's more of a, a generic question, how much time in the first session do you have for creating and learning about the characters? And if you don't have a lot of time, get some stuff pre-generated, let the characters pick a few special things, like maybe what specific kind of, kind of weapon they want. So if it's a fighter, maybe um, don't pick the weapon for them, but when they get to the table and the person says, well, I want to be the, the uh, two-handed sword, or I want to have a sword and a shield, you know, fill in those blanks at the table. 
But if you have very limited time, then maybe you want to do the full pre-generated characters. And then if you have the group of players who maybe wants to play along a storyline, kind of like a Lord of the Rings or whatever, and you want it to go from point A to point C, um, and you know you're going to hit B in the middle, then you've got an idea of what's going to happen already. So you can fill in those blanks with the pre-generated character and the pre-generated adventure. I mean, I think we saw with the Adara thing that even if you have pre-generated characters, you can still tweak them at the very end and like change their names up or give them traits that make them your own. Like you don't just because you have a pre-generated character doesn't mean that it's it's soulless. Like you can give it like characteristics like at the very end. So they can make it their own, and you wouldn't have to like spend a whole week right. creating. Right. I mean, what I had been thinking about with my group was to have an option for you know, if anyone wants to come over and open a bottle of wine or crack a couple six packs, I can walk you through character creation. Uh, and if you're not interested in that, I've got pre gens, and you can come twenty minutes early to the well, game, and we if can. If you said bottle of wine or six pack, can I play? Absolutely. <laughs> All right. This is definitely going to be a drinking crowd at, right. at the home game, and not recording. Um, but you know, what I worry about a little bit with the pregens, like thinking about the D and D starter set, um, you know, I, I can't remember exactly, but you had only one character that would, for example, be able to be played as an archer. And if that character was a dwarf, and I have one person in particular, she's going to want to be an elven archer. Yeah. Well, you can't just change dwarf to elf on a pregen without it changing some stats or without it changing some backstory. Not that hard for me to tweak, but I still have to do it. But, you know, I would say at the same time that when that comes about, it's not going to break your adventure to just say, okay, you're, you're an elf. Right. Yeah. Leave the stats the same and just say, okay, you're an elf. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. it's not going to break the gameplay. Right. Right. It's not really going to matter. And especially if it's, sorry, if, especially if it's self-contained where you're going to be playing either a one-shot or a starter set and then moving on to something else. If it was going to be a year-long campaign, I might worry a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. Make Sorry, it. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no worries. So, as far as like, so the question is, brand new DM, a group of people who've never played before. Um, I think the yeah, first how much step. Do you prepare on paper? I think the, the first step would be to you know to just have a conversation about expectations. Because I remember like when I first sat at a table, I didn't know what to expect, and. I was very intimidated, so I think that's laying out some ground rules of you know it's okay to take time during you know during a, a turn. It's going to take time to learn about this. Forgive everyone, forgive yourself. Don't put too much pressure on it and make it fun because then you start the anxiety builds and then it's not really fun to play. And then around the question of pregen versus non-pregen, I tend to prefer pregen when I'm first starting because there's a basis. It doesn't seem as daunting. I've got a box that I can color in. And like Mike said, everyone can make the character your own. Like when I played Brie Greenbottle, you know, that was a pregen character, but I made her the way I saw her in my head. And some of the things that she spouted out, like, hey, that's Mike, he owes me money. That wasn't written on a character sheet. You know, it's right. something that the player brings. Right. Am I thinking about the world? I don't think we need to talk about that too much. I think that's one of those things where 
from my point of view at least, would definitely want to start. Unless I was going to do a single one-shot, like a three-hour adventure, I could come up with that in my mind and have fun pretty easily. But if we're going to try to play at least a few sessions, for, my, for me, I think it makes a lot more sense to use a starter set, mm-hmm. um, even, if I, even if I customize it and add a little or take a little away from it. Especially when you said you have sort of limited time. And I know the only DM experience I have was running encounters and running a thing that I wrote. And encounters, while you really have to know that pre-published thing, because straying off of that, you then make the rest of the pre-published thing obsolete if you let them stray too much. Um, Writing it yourself, I wrote took so much time writing it and it turned into like mm. like I took a whole week like working on it hours and hours and it ended up being like an hour at the most of playtime because they would just like zoom through and they'd skip parts and then I mean as something that you're starting on I mean the pre-published ones are written by guys that have played D&D for like decades right so they have written it out and they've got a good basis going they they're not going to forget too much so it it if as long as you're you read it read up on it and you know your stuff it it theoretically should be easier for you right right so there's two different kinds of role play and when i say role play i'm actually spelling role differently there's r-o-l-l and there's r-o-l-e um and players who have come and sat at my table and have been new players, they eventually diverge into one of the two camps. Um, there's the player that prefers the dungeon crawl and just wants to roll their dice and watch their character succeed and not give it a character of, their, of its own. You know, its own the the dice are what the character is. The stats on the page are what the character is. And then there's other people who want to be the hero, actually, you know, do the heroic things or do whatever. And so, as a new DM with new players, you have uh, a double-edged sword there because you don't know how you prefer to run D- the DM yet, and you don't know how your player is going to prefer. And the ultimate goal of this is to have fun. So if you're a DM that prefers story over to Dungeon Crawl, but all your players are Dungeon Crawl lovers, there's going to be a you know divestment of interest there. Which is why I think you have to have the conversation before you start, you know, setting expectations. Mm-hmm. You know, and as a new player, you I may not know whether I like to just Dungeon Crawl or whether I'm going to enjoy the story and want to share and go down rabbit right. holes. Well, I mean, for you, for, for example, you started off just wanting to roll the dice. Roll you the dice, really, show me really my stats. You want to do the, the, the role-play mm-hmm. part of it. I think that role-playing comes as you evolve as a player. The more you play, the more fun it becomes. And then you start figuring out, okay, it's not stupid if I say, hey, little buddy, you know? <laughs> yeah. And you start doing stuff I like that. I think it's definitely a comfort thing. Like, at, it, it, at least in my experience, a lot of new players don't know that that role-playing thing and they're they're just going to play their paper because they're not they don't know any different but um i mean so 
I think you have to sort of plan for them to to not open up and maybe do your best to get them to open up. And let, let me take that one step further too, as far as setting the expectations, like Mickey said. If you guys remember when we started with um, with Adventures from the Shed, as well as other games I've run, one of the things I, I want to do before we start is address the people and make sure that everyone's compatible with what we're trying to do. So the games that I try to run, I'll sit down with the players and I'll tell them, look, this is going to be a cooperative game. All of the players need to get along towards a common goal. Now, if we don't think we can do that, then create a different character because that's not going to fit the system we're going to have. Infighting um, is a bad thing in the games that I run. Um, I like to say conflict, not combat. I don't want players to ever swing a weapon at each other. However, arguments and you know conflict, that, that's awesome. That actually brings dynamics to the characters. But you want to set that expectation ahead of time with the players before you even get to the characters. Make sure that everyone's on the same page with what you want to run. And if they're not, and you can adapt to what they want, kind of what JJ was saying with the dungeon crawl versus role play, if you can adapt to what they want and still be happy, go ahead and do it because you're outnumbered at the table. As a new GM, one thing to remember is you are always outnumbered at the table. And if you can make everyone else happy and it makes you happy, go with what they want more so than what you want. Right. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Does that answer? It's kind of important. <laughs> no, absolutely. I yeah. think that's great. But like here at this table, it's four to one. If I can make you guys happy by letting you come up with the story as we're going. So uh, I'll give an example. One of our last sessions where we were playing uh, the Adventures from the Shed Dungeon World Perils of Paradisi campaign, um, somebody had said, uh, I need to go find where the gateway is. And the reality there is I hadn't known where it was going to be yet. But I think it was Mike when he was looking said, I'm going to go look downstairs or something. You're going to go look somewhere other than the ground level. Mm-hmm. And to me, that meant, okay, fine, he's going to look there, so it's going to be in the basement. And that there gives a, a term that's used within role-playing games is player agency, letting the player own part of the world. And if the player can't own a little bit of the world, they feel like the world happens with or without them. And it's more important that the characters make the world happen than the world makes the characters react. In my opinion, mind you, then this is all part of that advice. And to me, I'd like to to use that kind of to segue to your next point here, which was how much plot to prepare in advance. And this is one I'd like Mike to talk about this one again, based on that, where you created hours and hours and hours. How did that actually play out? I mean, see, I, I tried to plan everything. And so I spent so much time and you can never the party will never go in the order of things or hit certain items in a certain order like you you want so then they end up skipping things and then like do you do you try to push them back so that they experience those things even though it it's counterproductive to the plot and it's like i mean if you can make a a real light plot and then just fill it in later, right. uh, that would probably be the way to go. Well, that's kind of, you know, assuming you're not using a pure published adventure and you are creating your own, I would envision s- 
instead of you know mapping out a dungeon where this trap is here and this monster is here and then they do this and then they do this i i would envision saying you know here's a here's a trap that i think is cool that i'd throw like to throw down at some point when it makes sense and here's a couple of monsters that make sense in this particular days you know in this particular night's adventure and maybe you know here's a couple of plot points that i'd like to develop but not necessarily wanting setting them in a particular order or place because exactly what Mike said, they could walk right by where you put the trap. But there's really nothing to keep you, in theory, from putting that into the next room or the room after that if it, if it makes sense in the, the way the game is going. So if you want your players to experience everything that you've prepared, um, you have to do what I, I, I've called before a railroad. Mm-hmm. And... There's, there are different kinds of railroads. There's the railroad where the DM tells you that you're going to be doing this and you have to follow. That's it. And there's also the more time-sensitive railroad, the one I like to do, and where I have some kind of impending doom that's coming in. And there's no clear path to how to divert that doom, but the players are looking for clues that I'm giving them. So in that, I can actually steer them. They're actively looking for me to help guide them. And, um, like, one of the things where I, I came up with this really cool idea where I wanted, um, uh, basically, there's an invading force coming in, and <clears throat> the the players had to try, try to um, rouse the people to come help them. Well, they also had to try to bring as many people inside the, the main city gates as possible. But they found out that there were some towns out there that weren't responding to messengers. And so they go out and they find like these other towns and they find the one town just completely disappeared off the face of the map, literally. Um, one town had been um, cursed. And they had been cursed by a god that created them all to be werebores. And because they were all werebores... Um, <laughs> They were, you know, they were frightened beyond belief. Well, the players, the players, the players made the decision to, um, they, they negotiated with the god to lead them werebores because they would be better fighters against the impending force as werebores than they would be as normal humans. And it was like, that just kind of was like, whoa, that was like, that was not expected, but awesome. That's cool. So I think we're all on the same page that you can't map it out too much. No, you but, you can have a general but, structure. But having said that, when it comes to combat, and this is where I had the hardest time thinking about trying to do a session with you guys, I might know what type of creatures I want to fight, but how do I know specifically how many creatures at what hit point level or challenge rating level do I put into a particular engagement so that I don't either overwhelm you and end up with a total party kill or have what I want to be a challenging encounter over in you know uh, one let's, round. Let's take that a moment. But first, Mickey, what were you going to say? Um, about mapping. Thanks. So there's no rule. I mean, you're the DM. I can't read your mind. There's no rule that says that I can't experience everything you've created. As a character, I'm just rolling around along in this world. And if you've created something really cool that was supposed to happen 10 minutes ago i don't know that Just right throw it at me you know right that's kind of what i envision is is having pieces that i just move in different places that you hit at some point hopefully yeah if if it makes sense and there's no reason i can't hit all of them because i don't know what order they're supposed to be in right and, and I would that's say, up to that when you're creating it you need to have a looser um you can't 
have something not make sense if it happens after. You want like almost independent events to be right. able to bring them in whenever it makes sense. Right. He used the word I was just going to say. Instead of creating plot points, create events. Create, so, and you had mentioned this, is there going to be a trap here or a trap there or a trap there? You create the event of the trap. Right. So, and, and again, I'll, I'll reference the game that we just played in, in our Dungeon World system. Um, there was going to be a spot where you guys were going to face a room full of traps in order to get to a destination. That was going to happen. It turned out that it happened in the spot where it did, because um, as uh, Shadrock, Kurt rolled a failure in turning into the animal he wanted to. So when he moved up and around the corner, it, that, it, at that point I said, this is the time I'm going to have that event of a trapped room happen. And you're going to move around the corner and you're going to get trapped by a net. And that's going to be the first of many traps in the room. So I didn't say that at some point they're going to turn a corner and there's going to be a room full of traps. My, my event in this case, like JJ said, come up with the event. There's a room full of traps. Find the time where it fits. Now, one of the tough parts is if you're playing a pre-published adventure, you're going to have to follow what it says. In this room, if somebody approaches and they're paying attention with a DC 15 perception check, they're going to find a trap in the room. So you've, you kind of follow that. But say that nobody checks and you still really like that trap, hold it off till the next room or the next or the next. And wait till the rogue or the thief says, I want to check for traps. Give them that spotlight. Give them that opportunity to actually find that trap. Right. right. Well, and that may, uh, I don't know if I'm skipping. You know, I just raised the question about, uh, how you set up a combat, but yeah. and I, I do want to cover <laughs> that. I wanted to make sure. Yeah, let's come back one. to that though, because I think it makes more sense to talk about pacing. And okay. there certainly is no right answer to this, but you know, if really good GMs do a great job of pacing the adventure, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want a combat that takes forever and a role play that takes a diplomatic role play that takes five minutes, or vice versa. If your table enjoys both types of play, um, and you don't want to, most people don't want to spend an hour and a half disarming a trap. So, you know, how... Unless you're the rogue, in which case it's perfectly <laughs> right. okay. So other than, you know, planning the, a variety of independent events in advance, how do you actually in-game manage the pacing? And I guess what I'm thinking about here is there are, and we see it at our table, there are times where things lag down and one or more players are getting bored, and there are other times where we're all really actively engaged. And that is not as simple as we're engaged in combat, we're bored when it's not combat. In fact, I think sometimes it's the opposite. So what, as a GM, do you guys do if you sense a lull to help keep it moving? Or if you think something that you want to be a major event is moving too quickly, maybe to slow it down or lengthen the drama? Well, let me I, ask Mike, because he was I about mean, to talk. Yeah, I think ahead. that um, combat is the easiest, because combat, if if it's going too long, there's nothing to say that, that some of them just get bored and run off. Or they or suddenly get off. to be worse enemies. And let me give you a quick good example of that. In that last combat in Hazara's chamber with the mummies, mm-hmm. um, the, the role that Mickey had to for that last mummy wasn't really going to kill it, but it was the right time to end that combat. Right. So I said, you, you jumped over it, she vaulted over it, sliced across it with a rapier, and poof, it was done. It was the right time to end it, and that, that goes to pacing. Go and then as far as lengthening... Or role-playing events, I think it really comes down to you on how much you want to drive that. Because it might come down to you like to stretch it out. Like, 
like if if you don't want to continue the conversation then a lot of the times your players aren't gonna push you to go more you're they're just gonna end when you're you're done so i think it is that definitely comes down to like like how much you're willing to give um whereas combat you can like manipulate it to be longer or shorter easily which raises you know another question i had which is whether you play behind a screen or not and i didn't even mean that in terms of literally do you have a screen but it comes to the question of fudging roles perhaps which i know people have strong opinions on some people would say particularly in D, you never ever fudge a role but to me the example you just gave is perfect like that that uh mummy encounter was as long as it should have been and so it, it ended at the perfect time but you just told us well it Technically, by the dice, at least in D and D, that yeah. wouldn't have ended. It would have gone another round or two. So, um, yeah. JJ, do you have a feeling about that? So, I the, the, my most my the most of my experience comes from fourth edition, where combats tend to ta- be the centerpiece of the game, um, and combats in that system tend to take about an hour minimum, depending on how many things you have. Uh, so, the thing that I learned from that is everything that's on the character sheet is a resource. And you have an adventure planned. And you have an end goal in sight. And are you, as the DM, using up the player's resources at a quick enough or slow enough pace? Go back to pacing. Are you, are you as, a, as a DM, using up their resources so that when they fight that final fight, they barely make it out? That's what you want to try to do. So, like, if you're in a fight and the players have passed that threshold, like you guys played my thing where you know everyone was going, "Oh my god, how are we going to survive this on that second fight when we did the fifth edition?" And then it just once you pass that threshold where you're no longer feeling overwhelmed and it's going to win, there's no point in dragging it out. Like, technically, the invisible stalker was still alive, but nobody knew that. Nobody knew what it does and you know so on and so forth i just got rid of it because it didn't make sense to keep it around so and then to answer your screen or no screen thing i am more of the opinion of if you're using the player's resources and you have 10 fights planned so to speak you want to use up a tenth of the player's resources every fight so that when they finally get to the last fight they're they're barely making it out that they you know they feel like it was a hard fought because that's the only time that anyone really feels like they've accomplished something if you just face roll something like if you just like it just completely it's just easy it's not memorable right mickey what do you think about how like the pacing of an adventure from role play to combat one of the things i was thinking as we were talking about it is remember that that kind of adventure we'd played in in uh, fifth edition during the play test of you had the character, I think it was a druid, who could see into the animal thing, and you were mm-hmm. looking at this this cat who was actually a soul inside of a cat, and you had the cemetery view, and there was all this kind of really neat stuff that was all role play, and I don't think we didn't even did a roll for like 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how does that play into pacing the game where one person may be getting the, the, the spotlight and others aren't and you know you get into combat and everybody gets a different you know a different size of turn because a wizard takes 10 minutes for a turn and a fighter takes like 30 seconds 
How does that kind of thing play in? I don't know. I guess it depends on the people who you're playing with. Some yeah. people just like to sit back and watch. Others like to be the center of attention. So it just it depends. Um, I my number one r- rule when playing is I don't want to be bored. I don't like being bored. That's not the reason why I came here to play. I want to have fun. I want to enjoy it. So um, I think a GM or DM needs to be good at reading the room. You need to be really good at reading the players and figuring out who's having a good time, who's not, who's just who just wants to sit there back and watch everybody else, and who's kind of just angsting, you know, playing with phones doodling, whatever. I doodle a lot, but that doesn't mean I'm bored. Well, look at this pad. I know. <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm bored. It's just you know, it's something yeah, to occupy my thing. mind. But, you know, that's that's my feel of it. I think a game needs a good pace, and I think it's up. To, it's a lot of responsibility, but it's up to the GM slash DM to, to keep the pace going so that your players don't get bored. Because if you get bored, then right. they get disconnected. Right. You've got right. apathetic people, and then no one gets to experience the cool things that you've planned and i would agree that the pacing is gosh 99 point something percent on the dm the person who is actually perceived as running the table and i say perceived as because in my opinion i really don't run the table all i do is organize four people who are running the table in this case and adventures from the shed adventures from the shed.com um (laughs) we the pacing really happens around the players. So if the players are coming up with all kinds of ideas, and when you listen back to the podcast, you think about it sometimes, when I am the most silent is when you guys have all the ideas. So I just sit and listen to your ideas. I absorb them. I plug them into one note, or I'm putting them on my notepad. And at that point, that is really what determines the pacing of the game. And when I start to hear you guys saying, well, I'm not sure what's next, that's when I'm like, oh, crap, i got to come up with something. Right, right, right. So that's where that preparation, how much to prepare in advance those events. So, for example, in this case, I kind of showed you guys earlier the fronts that happen with the, the forgotten god Hazara. So there are, are, are the pieces that happen within that front. There are things that are going to happen. Whether you guys do anything or not, these are going to happen because the world revolves regardless of if the players are active or not. And that's all part of that preparation. So I have it here that in X amount of time, this is going to happen. And now uh, that's one of the reasons I've kept the ticking clock the whole time. Three days gone by, two days gone by. It's taking you guys six hours to do that, what have you. So keep that in mind. If you want to have it as maybe your first game is... Um, and again, I refer to the, the Lord of the Rings ro- movies so often. They had to get there before Sauron got all of his power back, right? So there was always a ticking clock, and that's what made those movies. That if they didn't get there, the world was going to end. So there was always that ticking clock, and that keeps that helps with the pacing. Right. And if you can remind the players at a point where everyone's like, well, I don't know what to do next. And if you can remind them that the world's about to end, are right. you sure you don't know right. what to do next? <laughs> So on a more specific question about pacing, in the starter set, I think you made a point to play it like it was because we were really testing yeah. a new edition of Fifth edi- of, of Dungeons & Dragons. But if you were running that for us a little looser, would you have shortened the goblin fight that took an hour and a half and lengthened the glass staff battle where we killed him in one round? <laughs> let, let me answer that quickly, but also reference a couple of things. So I'll try to answer it in about 20 or 30 seconds. Um, my wife, Bridget, she has actually listened to several other podcasts or Google Hangouts, what have you, where they played the starter set. And to my knowledge, and with other ones I have listened to, 
Adventures from the Shed is the only people who actually played it as it was written. Everybody else seemed to go way off the rails and come up with all kinds of weird, mm-hmm. I'll say shit, because some of it was shit. But they, they went off the rails. You're and not came biased. Up, no. They came up with all these weird things. So there were people who played the starter set but had character classes that weren't in the starter set, so they didn't even play the pregens. Anyway, um, they went kind of crazy, and we stayed on the rails. And I did that because for me, uh, and I think I'd said it before, one of the reasons was I wanted to play it as close to the book as possible so anyone listening to our podcast would hear the starter set as it was. Right. Instead of the starter set as a DM decided to make it. And that's very important to me because we had four people around the table, each playing one of the five uh, pre-gen characters, and a GM who was reading from the book. Because to me, that's what the starter set was. However, taken from there, if I were to try it differently, if I were to play that myself, kind of kind of think what you were asking was, I would have changed some things. Like, we never went to this whole village, Thunder Tree, Thunder something. I can't remember what it was. We never went to that village, and there were so many adventures in there. Plus, we're recording this for the purposes of entertainment, and we skipped over a bunch of stuff. We advanced a few things just to make it happen quicker than I would have at a regular table. So that goes to the pacing, that goes to the preparation, that goes to the pre-gens, that goes to the published adventure versus DMs making up whatever the heck they want. That covers a lot of, of stages right there. I think that starter set does a better job than even most um, pre-published in that there was so many different ways that you could have gone through there. Like there was so many adventures that we, we just never had because we had like such a uh, certain amount of time that they had to get through different things that if you were playing that with like your, your special, your Monday night game or whatever, you could hit you could play that for a year yeah. like if you if you just yeah. kept playing it realistically i think we went through uh 15 one five um podcasts for that so 15 hours of play and i think we could have easily gone through 30 if not yeah. 40 and that's my inclination with this group and i don't know whether they'll stick with this beyond even one night but is to do the starter set with the intention of if they really like it playing that as our campaign because i've looked at the the first fifth edition full campaign, you know, the rise of Tiamat, uh, Horde of the Dragon Queen type stuff. And I just, I don't think for beginners that that's the right adventure for a bunch of reasons. I like the variety in the starter set a lot. I really like that. I can't I think it was the second part where, you know, you go talk to all the different townsmen and get the side quest. It was either the second or the third. That was the, so I I equate it to the MMO thing, kind of what we did when we played, that the beginning of it was, I'm a new character, what can I do? Oh, there's goblins, let's see what happens. And then the second part was, hey, I've just arrived at my starter city. Let me find out all the quest givers and figure out what's the next step. And every single person I talk to will have something I can go do. Exactly. Which is cool. So video games have benefited from D&D and other role-play games, tabletop role-play games. Um, but same time, D&D benefited from video games because, the, like you said, the starter set had so many quests that we didn't do. And video games have instilled almost a completionist attitude in people these days, like they want to experience, they they bought the game. They they spent forty nine ninety five or sixty nine ninety five, whatever it may be now, to buy the game, and they want to maximize the amount of enjoyment they get from it. So they go and they try to get that ninety to one hundred percent completion, and 
that has in turn influenced the way D&D is played in that they want to do these little side quests. They want to completely flesh out the world. So there's a balance between um, fleshing out your character's story and fleshing out the ca- story of the world. If he's at the door, otherwise he's just barking at the um, So the, another part of that, one of the things I was thinking as we were playing, and, and this comes from my Xbox, playing games on the Xbox with my kids, achievements i I was thinking when you guys were in town i kind of wanted like some holograph to pop up on the screen you have talked to blacksmith achievement 10 points you know something like that and that that really goes to what you're saying jj so looking at the time and the fact that we've covered most of the topics that i wanted to do can we talk a little bit about the technicals of of the combat and you know let's say i want uh i've got a party of four players i want them to fight a couple of vampires a werewolf and a zombie or, no, let's not say that. I want them to fight Castle Ravenloft-type horror creatures. How do I know what and how many to put in there? So the I, answer I, I to think that, there's a formula, but I don't is. know what it is. The, the answer to that is... Before, before JJ says it, remember, it's per system. Oh, it is ahead. per system. Yes. But in, in, in respect to D&D, yeah. um, for example, the goblins, they're each one-fourth of a challenge rating. So that means if you have four players, each level one... Four goblins equals a level one challenge. So that four people level one. That makes sense? So the the way challenge rating is set up is it's designed so that if your number of your challenge rating is equal to the average of your players, then that should be a challenge. So four level one people should be able to take on four level one goblin or one fourth creature rating goblins. Okay, so it's not... So it's if not you a have CR one, it's a CR one fourth. Exactly, but it's four of them, so it bumps up to be called be considered a CR one. Um, for example, my thing whenever I had you guys fight the mind flayer, that you guys were only level seven at the time, but he was a CR nine, and then I had a bunch of uh, CR halves, those little brains scurrying around. Um, so that increased the challenge rating by a lot but when i originally designed it i had actually two mind players in there and after based on seeing how you guys reacted and almost died to the first encounter i was like two mind players is way too much for you so cr9 means that should be an appropriate challenge by itself that creature by itself should be an appropriate challenge for four level nine crit players Okay. So is it always based on a four-person party? When it's you always based on a four-person okay, party. So how do you adjust that if you have a five-person party? I'll yeah. say at this point, if you've got the Dungeon Master Guide, it tells you how to do okay. that. So I when do. we're st- talking specifically about D&D, it will tell you. The um, Pathfinder uh, core rulebook will tell you the same thing. Okay. It will tell you how to gauge it based on the characters you have. But it's also, as a DM, you ha- and the reason why I want you guys to help me um, playtest a... Uh, encounter i have is because the the skill of the players comes into play like you know how strategic they are so you with all new players they're not going to know how to synergize their attacks how to do x y or z um in order to create advantage so that you know mickey the rogue always has her sneak attack 
You know, like if you had the rogue just run off by itself and never fight with anybody, it's never going to get sneak attack and the true power of it. Yeah, that's of the a great rogue. point. They won't know what an attack of opportunity is exactly. or advantage, disadvantage. Yeah. They won't know until the first time you get in there and try and describe yeah. it. And that's as, a really great point. And as new players, you always want to give them as much success as possible. Um, I mean, that's one of the things that kept me coming back. It's if I'm at a at a table as a new player and I'm losing and I'm getting creamed, I'm not going to want to play. That's not fun. Right. At least not for me. I mean, right. no one wants their character to die. Right. Like it's the it, you want it to get as close to everyone dying as you possibly can, and then pull the reins back at the last second and let them win. Right. Yep. Use up those resources. Yeah. Right. And the big thing to remember is hit points are a resource, not yep. just food, not just equipment. Right. Hit points are the number one resource you're going to look at when you uh, when you design an encounter. Right. If you're actually indeed designing an encounter. And remembering that the goal is fun, particularly with my group. Um, like I would see where JJ's group, the design and the numbers in the CRs is really particularly important because they are all going to be hyper aware of every intricacy. With my group, I think it's going to be getting fun creatures in there. And then to some degree, I can fudge it to make it get close to death and fun yep. without them knowing that I'm fudging it one way or the other. And exactly. I can tell you that's the benefit of the, the new characters because they will never know if you change anything. Right. <laughs> like you can, Most experienced right, players don't know everything. Like if, if they don't know the rules right. going in, they're never going to call you out on it. Right. Which if anyone like listens. The whole screen, no screen thing, I don't think that it's an issue because like, like it, to me, the screen was almost a hindrance because I, I just would have to stand up and look over the screen to see the, the <laughs> yeah. map on the table. And like, they're not going to care if you fudge it. Right. Like it, if as long as they're having fun, it doesn't matter if like when I did it, I just pre-rolled all my rolls and then just went down a list of the rolls because I just found that it was something I could take out in my prep that I would not have to deal with. They didn't care if if I like I could show them the paper and say, oh, the next one's going to be this, but well, I mean it didn't. And the other thing about that, the pre-rolling is kind of a good idea because, like, I coached my first ever kid soccer game today, as you guys know. But for anyone anyone He's who might be listening at home. soccer's t-shirt. I am. Yeah. But what I was shocked about, so I'm coaching and refing at the same time because that's the way it works with six and seven and eight-year-olds. I could not get over how, t- how fast the time flew. And so, you know, you have a break between quarters. And I was like, oh, I'm going to ha- be able to talk with everyone and fix everything between quarters. No, it was over like that. And that's kind of what I'm expecting for DMing is – you know, it's going to be, by the time I roll, figure out, you know, armor class, figure out hit point, like, I feel like it's going to be just absolutely constant. Um, so anything I can do to simplify it, make it easy, prepare it in advance, maybe by some pre-rolls, I think it would be helpful. So for me, for example, with the whole screen versus no screen thing, I tend to roll out at the beginning of it, but then as the players progress through the combat, I begin to pull my rolls back. So that they can't see them, so that I can fudge them at first. That way, I can, if, if, if I roll a natural 20, boom, there's a crit. You know, now that person's scared for their life. But then, say, later on, I roll another 20 on them. I don't want to kill them just yet. Exactly. So I 
I pulled back. So usually by about the third or fourth turn, I brought my rolls back to where the players can't see them anymore. Just the sound of the dice is all they're hearing. Did they notice that and or care? I don't know. Did you guys ever notice that? I, well, know, I didn't care. I would say, I I would say from never. the player's side, the sound of dice behind a DM screen is one of the scariest things you will ever hear. Oh, God, yeah. Especially random. Yeah. All right, so you're like, we're, we're just going to travel down the road and see what's down here. And you hear the sound of dice. You're like, oh, oh, crap. What did I do? Wandering damage. Uh. <laughs> right. Yeah, so, yeah like, so that's, what, that's exactly what happens. It's like, you, they hear the sound of dice. Okay, I want to roll a perception check. <laughs> yeah. You know? Too late. <laughs> um, so. Awesome. Let me add a couple of pieces here based on what we've covered. So one of the things about the, the whole CR thing and pacing an encounter, especially starting, one thing I would recommend based on what I know of 5th edition now for D&D, if you're going to play that, if you're designing your own encounter, start with something easy. Start with something that the players should almost definitely win. But tell yourself at the beginning of the combat, okay, so let's say goblins. You've got four players, and only two goblins show up. The two goblins show up with bows. They've got scimitars at their side. They shoot a couple arrows. The players get right on them. As soon as those players converge on the goblins, say that one of them grabs a horn from his belt and blows the horn. And then you leave yourself the opportunity to say, in the third or fourth or fifth round, five more goblins join, or X number of more goblins join the combat. See how they dispatch the first two. If a player dies, essentially you can say one more shows up, right? And if no one dies and they just beat the living crap out of those two goblins, five more show up, three more show up, whatever it is. Escalate it to that level. It gives you the opportunity to play within the rules without fudging anything mm-hmm. and still allow an encounter to escalate. So we did that with wolves one day. I remember yeah. mm-hmm. them getting here. They showed so, up. You guys were winning, so they didn't really need to show up till the end. Right. So one thing I've done for is uh, <coughs> like again the mo- the modular encounter. Um, the final boss fight was two werewolves. They had to fight. Uh, they had to kill off these two werewolves. Their uh, male female mates. And I had the idea in he- in my head that like if they kill one werewolf first, the other one would rage. But if the fight wasn't going their way, I would just leave it as is. Well, they single handedly within the first like round and a half slaughtered one they just dogpiled one of them so i made the other one enraged and i gave it like two turns per turn per initiative so they got two initiatives now because enraged and it got like a bunch of extra stuff so that i use up those resources because it's like i said it's all about using up those resources and there's also you can look at not just quantity of monsters you can do the quality of their skills because usually in these things they'll have like these moves like that they're super moves and like at the beginning you could be throwing out like oh it's the the claw claw bite move and it does like so much damage and whittles them down and then like three or four rounds in all of a sudden they're just doing maybe one claw or they just do a normal attack so you can you can pull it back like that Whereas you don't have to um, add more. You can just use yours and like make them more or less badass. And the D&D, the 5th edition, actually helps you with that. So right in the monster stat block, it will tell you what its awesome daily power is, so to speak. Once per day, I think is the way they list it. And you can choose to lead off with that. If the players are, like JJ says, the resources is really, it's the key to managing whether a combat 
or an, a whole series of, of encounters is exciting or not. And it, say it's the first combat of the day and you want the rest of the day to be miserable for them, let the wizard, the wizard NPC start off with fireball, napalm, whatever it is that beats the living crap out of everybody. However, if you're on the last one, then the wizard saves that for his last dying effort and he throws that out there right before he dies. And, and it, it, that really comes back down to pacing. Right. And let, let's, let's take a minute and... and one of the things to talk about, too, is, uh, especially when it, uh, when it comes to combat, what resources do you need to have with you and accessible? And I'll tell you, um, Kurt, and it's, I can actually show you in my notebook here, on the games we've played, especially in the starter set, keep in front of you. Uh, for me, for D&D 5th Edition, three key things, and this applies to other versions of D&D and Pathfinder. You want the armor class, so what the players need to roll to hit. You want the hit points. And then you want their plus to hit with their standard attack. So if, the, if they're fighting an ogre and its armor class is 12, you know, I would write on my sheet, ogre, its AC is 12, its hit points is like 40, whatever it is, and its plus to attack is a 5. So that means I don't need to keep referring to the monster stat block for a regular attack. And almost every attack will be a regular attack. It's only when I need that extra oomph that the ogre is going to do something special. So when it comes to keeping resources on hand for 5th edition, specifically, keep your armor class, your hit points, and your plus to hit handy. And that will help you as you're going and, and just keep adding those, the, the hit point numbers up. Uh, JJ is better at this than me. I, I usually subtract them. He adds them up, and I suck at subtraction. So I'll learn eventually. <laughs> when you talk about managing resources, I would imagine yeah. that you could have characters find healing potions as yeah, a way if, of if you, if you've made it too difficult and you don't think they're going to make it through of course let yeah. them you know find some he- a, a stash of healing potions or maybe they find uh, a scroll a spell of uh um rope trick a scroll of rope trick so that they can cast rope trick and everyone can go up in there and spend the night and heal all night you know whatever it may be and so, train your players to do things like loot the room and loot bodies. Loot the, always loot the bodies. So, Mickey, from, from your perspective, from being just uh, only having been just a player, I say only. It's like the I'm player's the most player. important person at the table, in my opinion. But from that perspective, how, is, how important is you? Uh, is it? Is you, <laughs> how is important me? is you, yo? How very important, yo. How important is it that the, the, the person running the game, the game master, the dungeon master, how important is it that they provide you a way to replenish the resources that you've lost? It's absolutely very important because, I mean... I get very attached to my characters, and when they get really low on hit points, it's like a you know it's an anxiety attack. So I I do like it when that magic healing potion shows up at, in that little box that I just happen to loot because a DM goes, "Well, the, you've killed all the monsters. Do you want to look around? Yeah, yeah I want to look around. Loot the body. Oh, look, it's healing like in the potion. Hunger Games when the little parachute comes down. And I like, love oh, that. Sponsor. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Yeah. Mike, what do you think about that? I mean. It's everyone wants their character to survive, and you want to make it so that they're as close to death as possible. But you do need to bring them back because they, the enemies can't do no damage if right. they if they succeed. So I, I think it's good to to have items show up, even if it's um, just like magical swords and stuff, because people like special stuff. Everyone likes to have gifts. Yeah, right. little gifts from above. <clears throat> so let me ask, um, I specifically want to get Mike and Mickey on this one. 
uh, Mickey first, if you would. Um, screen versus no screen is a question that's come up several times. It's actually one of the, on the list that, that Kurt put together for this podcast. Um, does it, from a player's perspective, how does it affect you when a GM rolls behind a screen and says, I hit you? I don't believe them. What do you mean you hit me? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, oh, that's a good question. I want to say screen because it allows the, the DM to, to fudge. But honestly, I don't think I've ever noticed when, mm. when James starts fudging rolls. I do like to see that because when he uh. goes, I hit you, I will really prove it. Yeah. Prove that you hit me. My armor class is seventeen. <laughs> and you know, by the way, the the way to get around that is always keep a you keep two twenty sided dice. You leave one on a nineteen, and then you roll the other. And then when it's time to lift the screen up to show, there's always one on a nineteen right there. Just so you know. So yeah, I guess my answer is screen. So you think it from the player's perspective perspective do you think it adds to the game for the gm to have that little bit of mystery absolutely because like you said when we're walking down uh walking down a path you know it's like okay tell me your order oh gee i'm in front all right and then i hear that roll and i'm like the distinctive sound of the d20 of doom (laughs) what's going on what do you think see i'm i'm the opposite i'm i'm no screen i i said earlier that to me the screen is just annoying as a dm but um, but from the player's perspective, from the player's perspective, how do you feel about I that? mean, I'm sort of, I guess, indifferent though, because like whether you're rolling with a screen or without it, you're still rolling. Like yeah. it, I mean, it. I don't. You could just tell me what you rolled too, yeah. and it wouldn't make any difference to me. Like I, I don't need you to prove it to me. Yeah. <laughs> so it. one of the things, and one of the reasons I want to ask Mike about this too is I know that. During our starter set and other times where I have had to roll dice here, you've seen all of them, and you also see a lot of the notes I take and how many hit points monsters have. How does that... I don't know if that drives you crazy that I I look over and see what's left. The reason I want to ask that here is how does that affect you as the player? I'm not talking about the character, but as the player, when you see... so we're. We're playing Idara, and, and I roll the, the D12, and I get a 12 on the die, and, and you see it the same time I do. So you're like one of the first to see it. How does that affect you it, compared to if you hadn't seen it, and I said, I think I hit you? I mean, how, how does that affect it? I don't know. It's sort of like, to me, like the seeing the rolling is, is sort of like the party atmosphere of playing because like, you, you can almost celebrate you're you getting your butt kicked I like that. by like oh they had a great roll too yeah. or you see like across the table and and they roll like two ones and and you're like oh no or they you see that the dm rolls two ones and you know you're going to be okay yeah. and you're, you you squeaked it out again but uh, yeah i i just i like seeing it i i i think it it adds to it i don't think it really takes away i will i will say as a player i don't like seeing the hit points um, and I'm not knowledgeable enough to know the monster manual or the bestiary by heart, so I don't know what the hit points for most creatures are. But if I see that they only have seven hit points left, I play differently mm-hmm. than if I don't know that. I do like the descriptions that you give, you know, it's severely bloodied, it's limping, because then I know well, I'm probably in the bottom quarter of its hit points. Mm-hmm. I like to know that. But if I know it has three hit points, why am I going to use my huge spell? Right. As opposed to just throwing a dagger. I'm not going to use fireball on something that has one hit point left. So that, that's something that um, I did with, with Joe when he first started playing with me. It was 
I don't like pl- even players knowing how many hit points other players have. The only thing I'll allow is if you're in the top half of your hit points or if, in your, if you're in the bottom half of your hit points. Bloodied That's the only thing you're allowed to tell another player. So bloodied or not bloodied. You have little cards. The fourth edition stuff, yeah. Yep. Yep. The only negative I saw was when we were playing that, that starter set, we would we it was almost became a competition because you would find out like oh it has like one or two left yes. and then like <laughs> and then there would be a kill steal and you'd be like dang it i if yes. i would have killed had one more and it it becomes more gamey and that, than, my friends, than is the entertainment of adventures from the shed kurt we're coming up near an hour what else would you like to hear before we uh we wrap up what, what do you think um, you could pull out of our brains that could help you get your first uh, session. The only other thing I've had in mind is, um, for those of you who've played in other games, when you've had a bad GM or a boring GM, what about him or her did you not like specifically? Well, That's- I'll say I- I'd like you guys to answer that because I'm boring. So, <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. I mean, that's the other thing is I... I'm actually pretty excited about it and not nervous about it, particularly with the new players, other than just wanting to make sure I'm prepared enough and not stupid. I want to sell the game well to people who haven't played and made it. If I don't do a good job, they're not ever going to play again. Let, let me try that one first because I, I, I don't know if I've answered anything first yet because I've been deferring to others. But I don't like when a GM can't improv, and that's kind of rough Overall, there's a lot of people who are, aren't comfortable doing that. But what I don't like, number one on my list, and, and this is outside of Encounters or another pre-published adventure where I know it has to be on a railroad. Um, the number one on my list is somebody who says, I don't know, let me check if you can do that. Yeah. And it, 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 that's the worst. For me, it's like, that's your decision at that point as the master of this game to tell me right off the bat, Yes or no? No is a perfectly acceptable answer, and that's what a lot of people don't understand. No is okay. No is acceptable. I can take no because my character is a binary. I'm either going to do it or I'm not. Telling me no is okay. But when I say, all right, I want to go push the button on that column, and JJ did this with Strong Dawn going around the four columns, I'm like, and all I could think to myself was, wow, that is going to be fun. Right, so I'm like, all right, go ahead, you do, you got it. But if I could, you know, if this was a pre-published adventure or something like that, and I told him, well, I have no idea what happens when you push him individually. That's that to me. Yeah. That is the spot that says, while well, you just ground this encounter to a halt, and now we all have to wait so you can go figure out what happens. Yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah. I, I say like that generally on checking rules and things, particularly with noobs. I, I'll be able to get away with making it up. Um, JJ would not with his crew, but um, I would much rather make the rule up and get it wrong and have them not know and just keep it going than it's stop It's always and check. better to have a wrong rule than wait for a right rule. Exactly. In my opinion, for, for continu- continuity. The only thing you have to watch out, though, is if you say yes enough and you're doing a pre-published adventure, you get off the rails. And then, and then you have to... It. They need to just break the adventure. So you have to, well, it's good to say, yeah, oh, yeah, you can do it if you don't know it. Uh, it's, it 
it can be terrible if if in a page or two you find out oh no they they shouldn't right. have done that right you and can't going, let them cast a portal to another dimension in the middle of the starter back, set yes going back and listening to the starter set the thing that i found most hearing myself in the starter set was i hate having to to go with what's written oh it's killing me because you want to ask a, uh, an npc this and there's no answer for that in that npc stat block there's no answer for and now, it and you never have so to I'm do like, that in another uh, world ever which is well, great I don't necessarily have to. So, Mickey, what do you hate about uh, what a DM does that just you know, drives you wild? Drives me wild about what? The one thing that drives me wild about DMs is when they force um, things onto an adventure that don't make sense. Equals so, railroad. I do not <laughs> like that. I mean, I get there has to be a sense of urgency. I know that there has to be something that it's building up to it. But don't put me in a flippin' sell with a freaking pizza golem out of like oh my God. nowhere and then force me to fight this flipping thing and oh, memories thank you. you know like uh railroading can be done with a soft a, a heavy hand and can be done with a soft hand i do not like heavy-handed railroading man i would love a pizza golem <laughs> <laughs> no, you, no, you it was know. so afflicted awesome the funny thing uh, i i i don't think i've ever had a dm that i would consider bad like i no. i don't think that i've ever quit playing a game because of the dm like i've quit several times because the players the other players and i just didn't play the same but i i mean the dm has always been at least good enough to make it enjoyable for me and i would say on that note it is hard to find DMs overall. So once you find one, you'll put up with a lot of shit <laughs> in order to keep playing a game. Well, and it self-selects to some point, right? I mean, the type of person who wants to do it is already self-selecting. It doesn't mean they're going to be good at it, but it means yeah. they at least want to be good at it and yeah. at least want to, do, mm-hmm. um, want to do what it takes to have a fun game. And if you're a fun DM, GM, your players will forgive a lot. Like what Joe said. Yeah. Uh, you want to um, throw a final word in there, JJ? So the worst thing that, as a player that I can't stand about a DM is some, uh, it's, it's a DM that ignores the pulse of the table. Um, if you, like, as a DM, if you have a story and you want that story to come out, X, Y, Z, A, B, C, that is just, and the players are just like, just like my character would not do this. Then you can't make them do that. Like right. you need to pay attention. The same thing with like um, fourth edition. Like when after the fight had been going for an hour and a half, and I see everyone at the table just going, you know, looking at their phones or <laughs> you know, like doing other things. Like Mickey's snoring sometimes. Yeah. It's like okay, well now it's time to wrap up the wrap can't up wrap this up. Um, you know, you just gotta pay, keep your keep your keep your fingers on the pulse of the table. Just be aware of what's happening. And I know it's hard when you're trying to keep in, keep in your head all the rules, um, you know, the, doing all the math, doing this, doing that, like, it's, and keeping track of your initiative and keeping track of X, Y, Z, just so much stuff. And also keeping your finger on the pulse is, it's, it's hard and it's something that comes with time. Share the load. Share the load. Give your give your players jobs. Yeah, that's have, a great point we didn't it, talk about, but I'm definitely doing right. that. You yeah. notice in the games that we've played where initiative is kept, I've never kept it. Yeah, 
Gives now, did you do that before you met me, or? Oh yeah, I, okay. I've never kept initiative myself, except for like encounters. I think I I started it and then passed it off to someone else, but yeah, and, and only because it. they expect that of the DM sitting at an encounters table. Kurt, do you want to uh, wind us up with anything? How I do you do. feel this went? I do. Uh, I think this is great. I just want to say it's really helpful. Uh, a lot of what I heard was stuff that I'd already heard from prior conversations or expected to hear, but it's very helpful. I think to have it in you know in one session in one podcast and. And to hear it before I go out and kind of plan on actually trying it for real. So I appreciate everyone being involved and taking the time. And I hopefully it's help, helpful for someone at home who might be thinking about trying to be a game master or dungeon master. I'm thinking I might try it sometime. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is great. So uh, if everyone would like to say goodbye, farewell, and good night. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. That's a big penis today. <laughs> <laughs>